Today's reading of the Holy Gospel according to the witness of St. John, this is the third chapter, beginning at that familiar 16th verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, so that everyone who believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Those who believe in him are not condemned, but those who do not believe are condemned already, because they have not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Brothers and sisters, this is the gospel of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. God so loved the world. See what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. The New Testament is full of witnesses to the love of God that we know through Jesus Christ. And yet, when we hear about the love God has for us, the love God has for the world, the love God has demonstrated through Christ, we in turn use that same word love to describe so many different kinds of feelings about all kinds of things and people. Not too long ago, I was joking about the number of folks who've asked me to go out and look at their new car in the parking lot, and that sparked one of our members to do that very thing. He grabbed me out in the centrum and said, it'll only take a second. He loves his new car and wanted me to come see it, and it's a nice car. And I said, I hope you love your wife more and differently. <laughs> Last fall, a member of our congregation told me with just joy and glee how much she and her husband love the new house they purchased. But two days before Christmas, when the furnace ran out, she wasn't feeling the love. Nor was she feeling the love when the bill came to replace that furnace at $3,600 right before Christmas. Over the years here at Faith, I have listened to you, the people of God, speak lovingly, with deep emotion, undying allegiance to Seahawks, Broncos, Cowboys, Vikings, Packers, and some of you even love Browns. It's good when a man says, I love my wife. It's better when he tells her. It's good when a woman loves her husband and lets him know. Some of you have even said you love your pastors, and trust me, in a world like this with so much criticism and negativity, it's a blessing to hear that from time to time. There's a lot of talk about love. But we certainly don't mean the same thing, do we? Do we? When we speak of loving our cars, our homes, our sports teams, our spouses, or even our clergy. What do you love? The answer will be different for every single person here, won't it? Depends on who's answering the question. Some love ballet. Some love classical music, rock and roll, country western. Chinese food, Italian cuisine, red chili, green chili. Some love early mornings when the world is new. Some prefer late nights. Some like loud parties. Some love 
quiet walks, running, walking, reading, writing, researching, coffee, tea, all these different loves. Some love hot sand on sunny beaches. Some can't wait for a fresh powder on snowy ski slopes. Bo Diddley asked the musical question, who do you love? And my seventh grade English teacher, Miss Wright, of the long bony fingers, let us know that Bo should have been saying, whom do you love? Not who. Whom do you love? Your wife, your husband, boyfriend, girlfriend, children, grandchildren, parents, grandparents, best friend. The people we love are different for every single one of us. You may love your uncle in Arkansas and your cousin in Alaska, but the rest of us don't even know those people. So how can we love them? What do you love? Whom do you love? The answers will be as different as we are one from another. And the objects of our love do not remain constant. They change, don't they? Do you love all the same things now you loved five years ago? Twenty years ago? Our hobbies change. Our interests don't remain the same. Our idea of a fun time changes too, and we can thank God for that. Otherwise, some of us would not be alive. Something we never tried before captures our imagination, fills us with new delight. We love it. Something we thought we'd always enjoy over time becomes boring. It loses its appeal. The excitement's gone. So we find a new hobby, a new activity, a new thing to do. And it's not so much that the things change, but it's how we change. Do you love all the same people you loved last year? 10 years ago, 20 years ago? Are there new people in your life that you didn't even know back then and now love deeply? Are there people you used to love? And that feeling's gone. We use the same word love to describe all these different attachments, feelings, emotions. That's because of our English language. But I preached on this before, and for some of you this is a review. For some it's new information. The Greek language, and the New Testament was written in Greek, does not use the same word love for all these different feelings. In fact, there are at least four different loves in the Greek language. Eros, philia, storge, and agape. If you've never read C.S. Lewis' book, The Four Loves, based on lectures that he delivered in England, I commend that book to you. Put it on your short list of books to read. It was published in 1971, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. In those lectures that were put into the form of a book, C.S. Lewis talks to us about eros. And sadly, that word has become perverted. It has been misused. Erotic. That's not what eros love is. Eros is that beautiful, precious God-given love between a man and a woman. Philia describes that deep and abiding love between friends or people in the same city or country. So we get Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Storge is like philia, but it's on a smaller scale. Philia is the macro. Storge is the micro. It is the love between members of the same family, the same clan, where there's this deep sense of intimacy, the way a mother falls in love with her newborn child. And the Greeks even saw this love at work in the animal kingdom, watching mothers protect their offspring, even putting themselves in harm's way to defend their young. And while the Greeks used all those words 
to describe love. The word used most frequently in the New Testament to describe the love of God that we know in Jesus Christ is not eros, philia, or storge, but some of you know this, agape. John 3.16 says, God so agaped the world that he gave his only son. Now that's a different kind of love altogether. This love is self-giving. It is self-sacrificing. It's not just for one's friends or spouse or fellow countrymen. Agape love is what we see in Jesus. We see agape love perfectly displayed as he's dying on the cross, surrendering his perfect life for imperfect people like you and me. You know, Jesus willingly gave up his life. He knew he was going to Jerusalem to die. This was no surprise. Agape love is like that. It's a reflection of God himself, the word made flesh. And here's the thing about agape love. It doesn't cease. It doesn't fold its tents and get out of town when it's met with rejection, anger, or hostility. Think on Jesus, despised, rejected ridiculed, spat upon, mocked, and yet he continued loving. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. In the cross, in this agape love, God shows us his passion. And think about that word passion. On the one hand, it means suffering. On the other hand, doesn't it mean intense love? And in Christ, we see both the suffering and the intense, passionate, agape love. Agape teaches us that God is good and God can be trusted, and that God is greater than all our fears and doubts, even those deeply personal doubts that anyone could ever love me so completely or perfectly. In our first lesson from 1 John, we hear, see, behold, what love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God. It's not, see how wonderful the Father found us to be, his delightful sons and daughters who could not help but love us because we were so irresistible. No, this is almost to see what love the Father has given us, that we, sinners one and all, should be called children of God, for all we like sheep have gone astray. Agape love is not a reward. It is not something we have earned. It is a gift. And in the rest of that familiar third chapter of John's gospel, most of the Christian world knows John 3.16. Oh, that others knew verses 17 and what follows. We hear of judgment. A judgment that's already in. The world rejected Jesus. It preferred the darkness, not the light. Judgment isn't a topic preached on very much these days, is it? Is it? In the 20th century, judgment sermons were much more common. I heard a lot of them growing up. And a lot of people were made to feel more than a little guilty. And maybe that was a good thing. I remember being told, I'm a wretched sinner. God's angry at my pitiful life. If I don't turn from my wicked ways, God will judge me guilty and I'll burn in hell forever. I heard sermons like that. Any of you? 
But the message today in contemporary Christianity is quite different, isn't it? It's changed, and not necessarily for the better. We're being told by our culture and many in the church that we're basically really good people. We've been told there are many ways to heaven, Jesus and his cross, Jesus and his love. Well, that's nice, but it's just one of many wonderful options. We've been told that God isn't going to send anyone to hell if there is a hell, no matter what they do or what they believe because a loving God would never do such a thing. We've gone from one end of the spectrum to the other. And the faithful theologian Richard Niebuhr saw this change into the easygoing American version of Christianity. And he said, it seems a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. In other words, a God without passion. The message of a God who never judges us or names sin for what it is sounds so attractive to so many people today. And for the most part, you need to know this, especially you parents. Our culture has bought into it. But deep down inside, we know, if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we're not all right, and we know that we're not all right with God. We know this broken world needs help. We know we need help. And all we have to do is look at our own lives, our own relationships, the world around us, to understand that God has reason not to approve of all that he sees, to judge us guilty. Yes, some of us can remember those fire and brimstone sermons of our youth. And just thinking of them can make us feel like wretched sinners. And I don't mind telling you that a few members of our congregation have suggested that I need to preach more on fire and brimstone and less on grace. Because you know, Pastor, there are certain people that just really need to be told about hell. But not me. See, the problem with hellfire judgment preaching is that it leaves out the good news of a God who's already rendered a judgment. The wages of sin is death. That's what we deserve. That's the judgment. Fire and brimstone preaching, it might make you fearful, but how does it communicate the marvelous love of God in Jesus Christ that was poured out freely and sacrificially because Jesus doesn't want us to live our lives fearful and afraid like cowards. He wants us to live boldly for him and the sake of his kingdom. The answer to judgment is trusting and living in God's freely offered love. Jesus took the punishment we deserved by the judgment rendered. And when we do that, when we dare to live in God's love through Jesus, we don't have to be afraid. There's a hell, yes there is. Jesus went there to preach between his crucifixion and resurrection. That's in the word of God. Look it up. There's a hell, but God's love has been demonstrated to us in Christ who has opened the way to life and hope and healing and heaven. Do you remember the apostle Peter when he first faced the reality of who Jesus is recorded for us in Luke chapter 5? Peter said, get away from me, get away, I am a sinful man. He felt judged, guilty, and unclean in the presence of the Lord. He felt inadequate, he felt condemned. And what does Jesus say? You're right, Peter, you're such a loser, 
You're such a bad guy. You're such a disappointment. Why would I waste my time on a jerk like you? No. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. In fact, I want you to come with me. Follow me. Jesus' response to Peter is his response to sinners like you and me. Don't be afraid. I'm going to take you from what you are and where you've been and transform you into what I've always intended you to be. And this is not done with an iron fist. It's done through love. Courageous, agape love. Some say it's trite. I think it's truth. And I think it's profound that God would love a sinner like you and a sinner like me. That's amazing grace. He who is the creator of the heavens and the earth has given you life. He is the father of our Lord Jesus who died for your sins and mine, promising you an eternal place in heaven. He is the Holy Spirit who promises to help us, guide us, and empower us, especially in times like these when we feel alone or afraid. What do you love? Whom do you love? That answer will vary between us. But here's thing, one thing that's constant, more constant than the North Star. God's love, it's eternal, it's faithful. And listen up. You, my friends, are the object of this precious love. We can be thankful that our God is a God of passion, a God who suffered greatly, a God who chose the cross. And he chose that cross because he loves you, and he loves you so completely. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen.